shocked the world no less than three months of rioting which overwhelmed the country of France. You may remember it from October to December last year as literally thousands of young people, night upon night, took to the French streets venting their violent frustrations. The cost was high. 9,000 vehicles set ablaze, some 3,000 arrests, an estimated £100 million worth of damage, and not to mention the human cost, countless injuries, the fear, and at least one tragic death. And therefore, no wonder people were asking in the aftermath, how could this happen? How in an apparently civilized country like France could human beings descend into British behavior like this? Well, there were numerous suggestions from different camps. Some pointed to economic causes, poverty, unemployment. Others said, no, that's not the real reason. And they pointed to religious and racial roots. Others still blamed the authorities, and yet others placed responsibility on the communities. But perhaps the most interesting and penetrating analysis came, in fact, from the French president himself, Jacques Chirac. When he was asked why he believed this crisis had occurred, he responded like this. Maybe you remember the quote. These events bear witness to a deep malaise. It is a crisis of meaning, a crisis of reference points, and an identity crisis. A strap line which I wonder could perhaps be placed over our society too. For is it not true that closer to home, in the conversations that we have with people, why it may even be true in our own hearts and lives, there is this prevalent identity crisis. Why are we here? What is our purpose in life and in death? And therefore, tonight, as we come to Psalm 8, we find the remedy that cures this illness of meaninglessness. And the symptoms that come from it. You'll see that Sammy answers the fundamental question of our identity. Pose right there in verse 4. What is man? Man, in the biblical sense, including men and women, male and female. What does it mean to be human? That's what this psalm is asking and answering. And so tonight, if you are really going along in your life without meaning, without a sense of direction, then this psalm has guidance for you. It is a reference point, if you like, to lead you to reality. And if you are surrounded by those who are living aimless lives, lost without God in the world, then this text shows how you might direct them to Christ. 
So consider with me carefully, if you would, Psalm 8. A psalm which answers this question, what is man? I would suggest to you in two ways. And the first answer to the question is simply that man is a worshipper. Man is a worshipper. Something which not everyone believes these days. If you ask those of certain Eastern mystic traditions, what is man? They might tell you something like this. Man is a god. Man is divine. Everything that exists, they would say, is really part of God, and that includes you and I. And yet, according to this psalm, that view of man is profoundly distorted. Man is not God. Man is created to worship God. Man is a created being who has been made to worship the God who created him. And until man finds that purpose, he will be frustrated in everything he does. Or put another way, Psalm 8 is not about the magnification of man, but man's magnification of God. And you see, the first point that this psalm establishes is that God, not man, is the object of worship. Verse 1 does not begin, man, O oh man, how majestic is your name. It begins in the second person, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It is the Lord who is praised at the beginning of the psalm in verse 1. And it is the Lord who is praised at the end in verse 9. In the exact same words as David begins the psalm. Now it's not that Dave, David is repeating himself out of bad memory. We can rule this out because most scholars think that this was written during David's early years, his shepherd years. Perhaps he was out on a hillside gazing up at the heavens when he wrote this. And neither is this a very ancient example of vain repetition, as you sometimes hear. In the structure of the Psalms, no, this sort of first and last parallel was a way of putting a signpost toward the main theme of the song. It pointed, if you like, to the chorus line. And what is the chorus line of this song? This song which has so much to say about man, God, the Lord, is the chorus line, his praise. Now that is surely significant, isn't it? That even in the highest meditation on man, God gets ultimate glory in the Bible. I guess it's because we are so man-centered, aren't we? I even realized this after reading the psalm several times. I was reading it with the wrong emphasis. I like the way that you read the psalm Ian, earlier, with that divine focus. Let's just read the middle part briefly again. Verse 3. It should be read, When I consider your heavens, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man, that you are mindful of him, the son of man, that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. Do you see? The song is all about what you, the Lord, 
has done. And therefore, David is crystal clear that man, not God, is the object of proper worship. Now, as we come to the end of verse 1, however, we're left with a little bit of a, of a query. Uh, we're wondering exactly how this will work itself out. Did you notice the very specific wording at the end of verse 1? Because David doesn't just praise God in a very general way. He finishes verse 1 like this. How majestic is your name in all the earth? Now it is true, of course, as David says in verse 2, that God is glorified everywhere. That his glory is seen even above the heavens. And yet according to verse 1, this psalm is a specific meditation on how God's name gets glory on earth. And therefore we're left with this question, how will this happen? How will God be magnified in all the earth? Through what means? And the answer, staggeringly, amazingly, comes in verse 2. The subject who worships is man. God is praised, but man praises. And therefore, man has a dignified position within creation. You see, the mystic believes wrongly that man is a god. The mystic places man too high. And yet, of course, there are others who go to the opposite extreme, don't they? They say that man is nothing but a mere animal. Just a random collection of molecules and atoms. And yet, Sam 8 says that view is also mistaken. Man is more than a mere animal. He has been created by God for the praise and the glory of God. Indeed, David says it explicitly in verse 2, if we're in any doubts. From the lips of children and infants, that is, from feeble men and women, you have ordained praise. God has appointed you this evening to be the primary means of his magnification in all the earth. In the universe, the stars declare the glory of God. They pour forth speech day after day. But on the earth, men and women, by the way they live, by the praise of their lips, they give glory and praise to God. This is a staggering truth and commission. It is so staggering that you may even wonder tonight how to respond to it. There are some truths that you come across in Scripture that leave you so breathless that you almost wonder, how do I apply this and respond to this? Well, we're on safe ground if we follow David, aren't we? How he responds to this call and commission. Notice in two ways. First of all, humbly. It is highly significant how low David bows in this psalm. David is not puffed up with this commission to praise. He is down on his face, wondering, how can this be? In fact, verse 4, if you read it in full, goes like this. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. So he says, I'm commissioned by the God who created me to praise, and I can hardly believe he even knows my name. He even cares about me at all. There's a story about John Newton. You know, the man who wrote Amazing Grace, 
How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He had a long and troubled conversion journey to faith. And the story is told that during that period, he went through a very anxious time. He was anxious not so much that God might judge his sins, but that God, in his infinite greatness and splendor, might simply overlook him. Maybe God would just forget he was there. You ever thought something like that? If God is so infinitely great, and if I am so small, he could just put me out of his mind. That humbled David in the psalm. And he evidences this humility by calling himself a child and an infant. Did you notice that in verse 2? Why does he say, from the lips of children and infants? Why doesn't he say, from the lips of wise and learned men and women? Is it not that David recognizes the feebleness of his praise? He compares his thanksgiving with that of a child. Now, children don't have a highly developed praise vocabulary, do they? They are not supremely gifted in gratitude. So when I do something for my three-year-old, I don't expect a nice thank you note from him the next morning. And I don't expect a nice flowing speech to mum or dad. Because children are fairly limited in their ability to praise, are they not? Do you get David's point? He says that before the great magnitude of God, his best praise is feeble. And therefore, I would suggest, if David could say this, who wrote all these wonderful psalms, then surely we could say this too. Now, this is something very humbling, and yet at the same time, I think this should be encouraging for someone here tonight. Because maybe you are someone who's, struggles in public praise and in public prayer, particularly in verbal praise, which is the content of this first bit of the psalm. And one reason why you struggle is because you compare yourself with other people. Others pray with carefully chosen words. They seem to pray with such a deep knowledge of Scripture. And you think, if I need to pray like that, I can't pray. So I won't pray. But listen, if you compare yourself with others, it should be to say that all our praise is comparatively feeble in the sight of God. The best prayer in Charlotte Chapel declares thanksgiving like an infant before the glory and grandeur of God. See, that's why our praise should always be given humbly. And yet, it should be given humbly, yet secondly, actively. You know, this seems so obvious that you dare mention it. But the most obvious thing about this psalm is that David feels totally inadequate. But he praises anyway. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Our inadequacy is no reason for us holding back the praise that is rightfully God's. As I was uh, studying this, it reminded me of the first time I ever prayed in a public prayer meeting. I think I was about maybe 15 or 16 at the time. 
And I still get sweaty palms thinking about the occasion. The older gentleman who led the prayer meeting was one of these people that just prayed wonderfully. And we, the younger guys, we were just in awe of the way this man prayed and the way he lived as a Christian. And at the start of this meeting, however, he got up and he said to us directly, he said, lads, I know you're nervous, but we would love to hear you pray. And more importantly, God wants your praise. And all of us that night stuttered a sentence. Or the brave ones stuttered two sentences. I wonder if you are holding back what God deserves, particularly in your public praise, for the wrong reasons. And moreover, I wonder if your whole life reflects this priority of worship. I read recently of someone who keeps a note in their diary of different roles that they have to play in life. It reads like this. Fourth, to be a servant of God's church. Third, to be a father. Second, to be a husband. But first, to be a worshiper and a servant. Of God. Is that your list of priorities? Has that list been getting out of focus and order recently? Have we been losing the sense of our true humanity because man has been getting in the way of God and all the things that we wish to do? We are called to be worshippers, first of all. Notice, however, that there's a second answer to this question what is man? Verses 1, 2, and 9 tell us that man is a worshipper, but verses 3 to 8 tell us that man is a worker. In the words of verse 5, man has been appointed as a ruler over the works of God's hands. Now, it's important to see that this is not an appointment to a place of unqualified authority, but within a created order, the order of things which God has made. And note that this is why David begins in verse 3, not with a description of man's role, but with the universe at large. The work of God's fingers, the moon and the stars, which God has set in place. And the emphasis here, again, is of God's handiwork in everything. The power of God is not so much emphasized here in terms of creation, but the precision of God in his created work. It is the fingers of God which has intricately designed the universe. And the stars which have been set in place by God. The idea there is of a precise and intentional ordering, a design, intelligent design. You know, this design, as a little aside, is so obvious today that militant atheists who are scientists literally squirm under the obvious evidence of it. For example, take Richard Dawkins. You know, the militant, outspoken atheist? This is something that he recently said about biology. He's an expert in biology. Biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. So biology students it's going to appear that what you look at under your microscope was designed. 
But it's only an appearance. Take my word for it. Or Michael Crick. Michael Crick is the co-discoverer of DNA, the language of life. And I would imagine he's a very clever man, but he is also an atheist, committed philosophically to atheism. Here's a quote from Michael Crick. Biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed, but rather evolved. Listen, folks, this is hard work. Your eyes are going to tell your brain this was designed. But you need to tell your brain, your eyes, your mind, that it evolved. Well, I think that's not the best example of good science. David understood that God had precisely ordered the universe in the heavenly realms. And then within that wider created order, he ordered the creaturely realm, which David comes to in verse 5. Man, you see here, has a sort of mediating position. God has made man a little lower than the angels, the heavenly beings. So again, he is not God, he is just a creation. But on the other hand, he is more than just an animal. He's crowned with glory and honor, made ruler over the works of God's hands with everything under his feet. All these animals described in verses 7 and 8. And the predominant idea here is the idea of rule, govern, plan, and execute. In other words, what is being stressed here is not only man's relationship to angels and animals, but the work that man does in his role. So, in Genesis 2, when man is given this responsibility over animals, what happens first? He is placed in a garden to work it, to take care of it. Work is man's original and continual calling. Now, of course, it's not to say that there are never any exceptional circumstances, health problems, a disability of some kind, the God-given responsibility of child-raising, maybe even the painful sword of unemployment. And yet the usual pattern is that we are to work, paid or unpaid. Indeed, Christians are called to be model workers, Examples of what a worker should be. And I was thinking this week about our vision statement. Conspicuous for Christ. That's what we're aiming at. To really show something of Jesus to the culture around us here in Edinburgh. But I was also thinking of where do we have our opportunities? Where are those places where we really come into contact with non-Christians? I suppose there's a few different options But maybe work, the workplace, would be the predominant one for most people here. This is often where we spend most of our time. But if we are to be effective in the workplace as we share the gospel, then the way that we work is going to be part of that witness, for good or ill. And so I wonder whether the pressures of our society on work are having an impact on us in a negative sense. They're really the two extremes. Firstly, the tendency to laziness that there is. Recently in the Guardian newspaper, there was a review of a popular website 
called Office Pirates. Office Pirates is a site apparently aimed at young men who are, quote, mucking about online when they should be working. And the writer added that as far as niches go, this is not small. One recent study agreed with this by suggesting that British workers add up to 14 days a year of unofficial holiday just emailing and browsing online. We laugh at that, but it's just one example of this tendency to laziness. And this is not a new problem. And neither is it just a problem that the world faces. You remember the Thessalonian church to whom Paul wrote. These Christians, these believers were expecting the imminent return of Jesus any day now. So some of them decided, let's just give up our work. Our work isn't that important to God. And Paul the Apostle wrote to them very sternly, such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus to settle down and earn the bread they eat. Do some work, says Paul. The church in Colossae as well. Remember the slaves who felt that their freedom in Christ meant that they didn't have to work? And Paul writes to them, no. Slaves obey your masters in everything. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. Let me ask you honestly, when you work, paid or unpaid, do you work with all your heart? I wonder if there's someone here tonight or more than one person who really needs to hear this. Perhaps you need to be reminded that when you work, you are working for the Lord. Not that boss who you think gives you a hard time. And if you are skiving, to use a Glasgow word, you are not only stealing from your boss's time, you are really stealing from the Lord's. It's one tendency, one danger. And then on the other hand, it could be that you need to be aware of a totally other extreme Because maybe you are so devoted to your work that it comes before everything else, including God. Workaholism. And maybe in that case, you need to be counterculture in your workplace in this way. Maybe you need to work less in your office, not more. Not clock off every night at 8 o'clock because you're pushing for a higher salary grade like everyone else. So that others in your high-pressure work environment will say, who is his God anyway, since it isn't money or position? So we are called, one and all, to be not only worshippers, but to be workers. And indeed, our work itself brings glory and praise to God. You see, what God wants is the praise of our lips and the obedience and the service of our lives. This is the message that our culture needs to hear. This culture where there is a crisis of identity, a lack of reference points, and a crisis of meaning. Now there's a sting, however, in the tale in conclusion. Because one of the intriguing things about this psalm, as you study it, is how relentlessly positive it is about human beings. It's quite unusual when you're preaching a passage on man in Scripture. For it to be so positive, usually it's lots of negatives. 
And so much so, this has led some to think that perhaps David is meditating on Genesis 1 and 2, the first two chapters of the Bible. Maybe this is what he has in mind. The purpose of man in worship and work in the beginning. But to get the full picture, we really need to move into the New Testament, don't we? We need to move to the other side of the, of the fall in Genesis 3. So, would you turn with me just briefly to Hebrews chapter 2. One of the things you should always do when you read something in the Old Testament is ask, where is this taken up in the New Testament and what is said about it? And here, in Hebrews 2, which I'm not going to read in its entirety, we find how Psalm 8 is applied. See, at the end of Psalm 8, we are left with this question, how has man fared? How has man done in this task of worship and work? Has he succeeded or has he failed? And as we come to Hebrews chapter 2, we discover some bad news and then we learn some good news. So first of all, the bad news from the chapter is that man has failed. That man is a sinner. We learn at this side of the fall, verse 8, not everything is subject to man. Even Jesus, when he comes into the world, the perfect man. So something has gone awry. We learn, verse 9, that death has entered the equation between Genesis 2 and Hebrews 2. We learn that suffering has entered the world, same verse. And we learn, verse 17, that man is a sinner. He is a rebel against God, who has turned from God, who needs atonement for his sins. Now that is the bad news. That every human being, every person here tonight, has not lived up to the expectations and the purpose of God. And therefore our relationship with God, the Bible tells us, is broken because of that disobedience. But there's also some wonderfully good news in the psalm. That God has made a way by which man can be restored. By sending his son, whom Hebrews 2 is all about. Jesus, the restorer. Because what we learn in Hebrews 2 is that astoundingly, Jesus, who is God, stooped lower than the angels to become a man himself. And Jesus lived as a perfect worshipper and a perfect worker before God. You know, his chief work was to go to the cross to die for your sins and for mine. Bearing the judgment we should have bore because of all of our failings in all of our life. And he could bear it because he was a man, and he was a perfect man. And therefore tonight, through Jesus, and only through him, can we be restored to fellowship with God. And by the help of God's Spirit, be enabled to become the men and the women that God has called us to be. But we need Jesus. That's what Hebrews 2 emphasizes. We cannot do it without him. We cannot do it on the basis of our own efforts and striving. And therefore, this is really the personal challenge at the end tonight. Do you know him? 
Do you know Jesus Christ, who alone can restore you to God? If not, turn from your failing way of life and trust in the death of God's Son for you. And from that point, dedicate your lips in praise and your life in worship and work for Him. Let us be all that God intends for His glory. Let us pray.